Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast, coming to you live from our massive studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Just me tonight. Aaron is uh, still out traveling. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, has been really interesting this year has been the rise of this kind of trend called serverless or event-based computing um, that we've had a couple of shows on here recently, and the shows have actually been probably the top two or three shows for the whole year. So there's, there's obviously quite a bit of interest out there in the community. Um, you know, first couple of shows, we sort of talked about some basics. We talked a little bit about AWS Lambda. Tonight, we're going to we're gonna shift it up a little bit. Excited to have uh, Steve Fink from IBM, uh, IBM's uh, Distinguished Research Staff Member, and uh, one of the original people working on this new thing called OpenWhisk. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Hello. Hey. So, give us a little bit of your background. You've uh, you've been at IBM for, for quite a while. You're actually the first person from IBM to be on the show, so excited to have you on. But give us a little bit of your background. You've been uh, working on some very cool things for, for a number of years. Yep. So um, I work at the T.J. Watson Research Center, which is in Yorktown Heights, New York. It's about uh, 30 miles north of New York City. Uh, It's a very big research center at IBM. We have about 1,500 people working in the building, Um, computer scientists, physics, chemists. It's one of the most famous research labs, I think, in the world, and I'm very happy to work there. Um, I've been working there for a long time. I've been working in a group focusing on programming language technology. Um, over my career, I've done work on virtual machines, uh, a lot of work on program analysis uh, for use cases such as security, um, language design, and uh, now OpenWhisk, which is, I think of as an application of programming languages yeah, to absolutely. the serverless cloud. Yeah, it's very cool. So I, it's, um, you know, it, it, uh, it got announced a couple of months ago, I think it was around February, end of January, February at the... Uh, just before the the interconnect show, um, you know, IBM announced OpenWhisk, um, and you know, the first thing that jumped out at me because the serverless stuff was kind of getting this buzz um, was, you know, this wasn't just going to be another uh, like IBM Bluemix service, but you guys were going to open source it. So, give us a little bit of the background. You, you've got a lot of background in, in open source. What was the what was the general thinking um, from IBM about you know why to why to open source this? Well, one of the things we've heard in the serverless community is that people, quite a few people say that they love the technology, but they're very afraid of vendor lock-in, of writing their code for a particular vendor's platform and then being stuck there. So uh, we decided to open source it. That was one of the motivations for open sourcing it is to try to get people engaged and realize that it's something open that they could run wherever they want and to allay their fears of being locked in. Secondly, I think uh, a very big attraction of these serverless platforms, or at least the way OpenWhisk imagines it, is uh, having a big ecosystem of different service providers that making it easy to integrate these different providers together. And so we thought by making all the technology open, we're hoping to encourage people to play and contribute to the ecosystem and, and build up an ecosystem of servers service providers uh that can interact with this serverless system yeah no it makes makes total sense and you know I, I think at this point you know if you really get to sort of the one of the core benefits is is that that somebody else is sort of running this for you you can you can just focus on on the languages on the inputs on on kind of the tasks at hand and you don't have to think about operations um so when you guys were, were first starting this what were 
you know, what were some of the challenges that you were hearing either, you know, from, from the programming language community or just, you know, IBM customers, like what, what, what drove you guys to say, Hey, this, this might be something that's going to go solve interesting problems for people. Right. So one trend I think that everybody uh, sees is the need for agility and speed. Um, development cycles are getting faster and faster and faster, as well as the whole DevOps phenomenon. So I think the whole concept of platform as a service of lifting up the level of abstraction, letting people focus on their business logic, as opposed to having to spend, trying to allow them to minimize the amount of time they spend on plumbing, uh, is a big motivation here. So I think what we're going for is a high level serverless platform that where we handle a lot of the virtual machine and containers and load balancing and auto scaling and security and entitlement and so forth and free the developer to pro to be able to focus more time on business logic, not worry about infrastructure. Yeah. Um, some of the other, um, things we were going for one is of course with serverless people want to pay for exactly the resources they use and they don't want to pay for any resources they don't use. Um, part of that picture is also transparent instant auto scaling. So if I submit a hundred requests uh, in a burst, the system will immediately scale up, charge you for exactly what you use, and then dispose of the resources. And then a couple of other motivations. Uh, one was, um, as I said before, the integration story, trying to expose as many uh, event providers and consumers in an easy-to-use ecosystem. And uh, one final thing is we have a pretty heavy focus on the mobile developer. Mm -hmm. uh, we've talked to a lot of mobile developers who are very happy. Their passion is building cool-looking apps on their device. I mean, the devices are – these are incredibly fantastic little devices, which we all are carrying around in our pocket. And we've talked to a lot of developers who really love working on the mobile – on the device part of their application, but they really don't want to be – they're not enthused by building the back end. They know they need to have a back end to – provide the functionality, but that's not what uh, sells their service. That's not what makes it exciting. So for many mobile developers, the back end is sort of a necessary evil, and they'd rather spend more time on the device. And uh, so we are trying to make it as easy as possible for these mobile developers to quickly stand up a serverless back end and let them concentrate again on their mobile platform. Yeah, no, that makes that makes a ton of sense, and, and especially the mobile angle, because I know you know, around the, around the same time that, uh, that OpenWhisk got announced, um, uh, you know, IBM made the big announcement with Apple around, around Swift, uh, around the, you know, sort of the, the programming language for, for iOS apps and, and especially running Swift on the back end. So it makes, you know, uh, kind of complimentary makes a lot of sense that, that you're, you're targeting those kind of folks. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about the Whisk architecture. And this is, it's always a little tricky on a, on a, on an audio medium, um, for anybody who is listening to this, if you take a look at the show notes, um, there's a real nice diagram um, that IBM provides. But you know, when I when I look at some of the things that are out there, it sort of seems like there's there's three pieces to this. There's there's a trigger, um, the thing that uh, you know the, the the event that actually happens, whatever that event might be. Um, there's an action, which is the the thing that runs a little bit of code and, and does something. And then there's some sort of some sort of rule or policy or something that drives how that works. Um, can you walk us through a little bit about kind of the architecture and and some of the um, you know kind of the, the nuances that are that are in there uh, you know within some of those different areas? Um, sure. Um, let me start with action. Um, an action is simply a stateless function as an event handler. Um, this is very similar in conception to some of the other competitor platforms out there. So you simply just write some code. That's the definition of your action. And then you can upload it 
and run it. Um, if you want to get into some subtleties, for example, in OpenWhisk, you can compose actions. You can create chains of actions. So you can write three or four different uh, actions and then tie them together in a chain, maybe analogous if you're familiar to Unix pipes. Okay. And so this is a higher level uh, composition uh, feature, which we've added, which we think is you know pretty powerful. So that's sort of, that's one technique that sort of starts to allow you to assemble more complicated, more interesting applications. Um, triggers are simply technically a trigger in OpenWhisk is a name for a class of events. Uh, so if you're familiar with PubSub systems, sometimes this is called a topic. It's simply a, a tag by which you you group a bunch of events and can name them. Okay. Um, Usually what you do is you you connect a feed to a trigger. So you can take any stream of events coming from any source and the system provides APIs that allow you to hook these up. So you can say that this, the stream of events coming from wherever, from a queuing system or from a database notification mechanism or even just HTTP posts that people do to the system uh, get fed to a trigger. And so there's different ways to inject events into the system. Um, as far as rules, at the platform level, um, a WISC rule is a very simple entity. It's simply saying, uh, when this event happens, invoke this event handler. Or in our terminology, when an event of this trigger happens, invoke this other action. Um, using our primitives, you can encode more complicated rules on top of it. So, for example, if you're familiar with ECA or event condition action, so I can c- encode a condition as an action which produces like an if statement which produces its input if it's true and otherwise produces null when it's false using this together with the sequencing the composition i mentioned earlier you can now build a rule which says if this event happens and these conditions are true then invoke this action and so forth so that's uh, another subtlety i guess you're going to yeah one of the other things that jumped out at me and and you know, I think anytime something something new comes out, people tend to compare it to maybe what exists in the market. And uh, what was interesting to me when when OpenWhisk first got announced, um, you know, uh, like Amazon has has Lambda, and when Lambda came out, they said, "Well, we we only support this programming language." I think initially it was Java or Node, and um, and you guys kind of took it a step further, a couple of steps further. Uh, you supported you know just sort of Docker containers as being. Uh, an input, right? So, you, so you could have instead of just a simple event, you could have essentially something that would say, "Go trigger what could be a, a much more complicated, you know, sort of processing task as well." Is that something you guys were actively like, "Hey, you know, we don't necessarily want to just limit ourselves to a language or, or something simple. We we want to start thinking about more complex scenarios." Yeah, that's absolutely true. And uh, so the way the Docker actions work in OpenWhisk is if you can write a statement in a Unix shell, which consumes standard input and produces standard output, effectively you can wrap this in a Docker container and present it to Whisk and we'll manage it as a stateless action. The real use cases for these are, well, one really compelling set of use cases for this is suppose you want to use some highly tuned C library from wherever, from GitHub in your in your action, maybe a highly tuned uh, video processing library. So you certainly don't want to rewrite this library in uh, portable language like uh, Node.js or Python. On the other hand, what you really want to do is just build a binary, upload the binary, and then 
invoke it and manage it as an action. The difficulty with that, of course, is the portable environment since C binaries are not really transport, not really relocatable or transportable across different systems. So what we've done is we've taken the Docker uh, standard as a way of providing a architecture-independent representation of a program, which is simply a Docker container, and you can describe it by a Docker file. And so we allow you to do this, and then it allows you basically any sort of binary or anything you can imagine that you can encapsulate inside this Docker container, which is just about anything you do on Linux, you can just present it to the system and we'll manage it as a stateless action. Right, right. <clears throat> so that, that's at least initially going to get people around all of the, you know, hey, do we support this language, that language, the other? You can you can kind of always use Docker as a an entry point uh, for, for the system, which is very cool. Um, so, you know, one of the questions that we get, and, and you guys, we may be too, too early in the, in the cycle of, of how this is all coming together, but, you know, we've heard a number of conversations where people are really saying, you know, there's, there's a number of aspects that, that, that the sort of serverless event-based stuff is, is very interesting, and you highlighted some of them. You know, They run in a public cloud, so you get those benefits. You're going to pay for kind of exactly what you use. You're not, you're not, you're not buying a resource, and then you know, you're going to pay for whatever you use or don't use. You're using exactly that. Does auto-load balancing, auto-scaling, auto you know, kind of you know, sort of the, the paths that you really wish the, the platform would do. Um, and, and the question that comes up is, People are, I think they're starting to say like, hey, you know, is there a reason I would want to, you know, write applications any other way? Um, which is, you know, kind of always what happens in our industry. We, we go as far extreme as we can. What are you guys seeing as, as people are, are starting to, to play with the system, get used to it? Are, are you finding a certain category or class of applications kind of fit in this or a certain mindset or, or are people trying a little bit of everything? Um, I, I think it's people are trying a little bit of everything. I can give you some examples of some yeah. of the cool things people have been doing. That'd be great. Um, so we've had a couple of really cool applications done around video processing. Hmm. And in fact, um, if you go to YouTube and you search for OpenWhisk, uh, one of them is called Dark Vision and one of them is called Skylink. Um, these were some cool – These are so people posted the uh, source code on GitHub so you can just look at them. Um, so th they're both – video processing type applications. The first one, what makes them really cool, though, is they use IBM Watson image processing libraries oh, okay. in machines. So they do things like, so they take, as I said, their video processing, they take frames, and then they send them to various Watson services to do uh, facial recognition or image uh, tagging of images and uh, uh, some other cool things. So the dark vision one... Um, it's really cool. It sort of shows you how to use a serverless pattern to enhance a uh, image sharing site. Um, so, and the way it's structured is it uses a database as a mediator. So, if you think of um, a model view controller type architecture, if you think of the model as residing in an, in a database, and then they set up WISC rules that say whenever the model in the database changes, they're going to go off and do some actions. And what they do is they grab images which are dumped in the database and send it off to Watson services to generate tags and do facial recognition and uh, then dump those results back in the database. So I think it's a really nice pattern uh, of how to do things with serverless in that you can write sort of a traditional web app front end which interacts with a database and then you can add 
add value on services, which simply communicate through the database through triggers and then write results back into the database. And it's a very nice example of an event-driven architecture because you can add more and more listeners uh, independently to changes in the database to do more action. So if I want to add a new feature, a new kind of processing to this application, I can simply install new rules which listen to the same change events and fire off different actions and so forth. And you get all the benefits of transparent auto-scaling and everything like that. Yeah. So the dark vision one is really cool. The other one is the Skylink. It's a similar flavor technically, but this one is really cool because it's hooked up to a drone a uh, little commercial uh, quadrocopter or whatever you call it, um, yep. four-blade helicopter. And uh, if you go through, look th- through the YouTube videos, they've hooked up um, through the software which controls this quadcopter. There are ways to hook in with API hooks, and they use that to basically dump the video from the quadcopter into a database and then apply the same sort of technology and then present it back to the dashboard which drives this quadcopter. And so you can get real-time um, image analysis of the of the terrain that the copter is flying over and get some NS Watson to give you information about what it sees about these images. So I'd encourage your, you and your listeners to go check it out on YouTube. There are some really nice demos along that those lines. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. We'll definitely, we'll find those. We'll put them in the show notes and, and link to them. Um, yeah. I mean, as you're talking about the, the, the idea of, you know, lots and lots sort of expanding listeners into a database and, and as things come into the database sort of standard from the application, you have the ability then for these sort of interesting data feedback loops where, you know, depending on some internal group or some internal function, their context, you know, may be able to, to take that take that change, go do some, some actions on it, do some processing on it and, and put whatever those, those things are in their own specific context and get some pretty interesting feedback loops about what's going on, like in the financial markets or in weather patterns or all sorts of interesting things like that. So yeah, that's a very, very cool use case. Um, so what are you seeing? Um, you know, obviously, uh, it's out there. It's open source. We talked about that. You know why that's important. Um, at least early on, what are you seeing from from people? Are you seeing them wanting to contribute much more in terms of kind of the core, um, you know, engine that, that deals with triggers and actions and, and events and so forth? Are you seeing them mostly saying, "Hey, you know, um, I like the fact that I can kind of run it anywhere," but I'm doing most of my, you know. Uh, experimentation out of the edge, you know, in applications, in things. And where where are you seeing interest from people in in wanting to work with you guys? Yeah, so we've seen some of both. We've had some people uh, jumping in to talk about the core system, but I would definitely say we've had more around what I would call the edge or the ecosystem. So, um, for example, we've had, uh, for example, someone built an SDK uh, in NPM, uh, the OpenWhisk NPM module, that came out of open source or uh, someone built an integration with node red. Um, And I would expect to see, well, we've had a number of conversations about people who want to expose their own services uh, into the open WISC ecosystem. I think that's the easier way to get involved is sort of a lower barrier to lower barrier to entry to be kind of a user or a library writer and to contribute that way. Um, eventually, you know, I expect or I hope that p- more people will get involved into the core system and start to really hack on the core uh, components and microservices. Um, I think that's a, just a little more uh, 
scary, a little more technology that needs to be learned in order to really get up to speed on those parts of the system. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. What If, if somebody came to you, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see these little kits. A lot of times people are talking about using some of these event-based systems for stuff like IoT and, and small remote devices and so forth. Um, you know, we're starting to see kits pop up here and there from, from different hardware manufacturers and different people that are sort of starter kits. Um, are you guys doing anything? If somebody came along and said, hey, you know, what's the best way to get started? What's a what's an easy way for, for me to kind of go do some things? Any any tips or things that you've seen so far that are, you know, sort of great first steps for people? Well, I would say as in the big picture, um, you know, an easy way to get started is we distribute a lot of sample apps and tutorials and even like the applications I was speaking about before the vision process, the uh, video processing, an easy way to get started is just to download those, take a look at them and then see how they go. As far as the IOT space in particular, which you mentioned, um, we've been looking at that quite a bit. Um, I would say the first concrete step in that space was the Node-RED integration because Node-RED, I don't know if you're familiar with that. This is a very popular, Mm -hmm. um, platform for coordinating activities in IoT devices, and it can run on many different uh, IoT-like hardware, like Arduinos and Raspberry Pis, and it talks over this very lightweight messaging protocol called MQTT, and uh, so that's one very good way to start to look at the IoT space with WISC is to use the Node-RED integration. Um, I expect we'll have a native integration with MQTT as a messaging format coming down the line, and uh, so that'll be another way. And uh, we'll see what happens. You know, I expect there'll be lots of growth in this. And one of the best things about, you know, opening it up is that people will come up with things we haven't thought of and uh, ways to use the system or we've already seen quite a bit of that. And so that's one thing that's really exciting about putting something out there is just to see when people come up with something you hadn't anticipated. That's just awesome. Right. Now, will you be at the uh, the serverless conference that's coming up here in a few weeks right around your neck of woods out in, I think it's in Brooklyn? Yeah. Yep. I'll be there. Okay. Cool. Are you speaking? Or are you just uh, in yeah, attendance? Yeah. I'm, I'm speaking. I'm giving a talk along with one of my colleagues. Actually, the dark vision uh, video processing I mentioned before. We're going to be demoing that at the con- at the conference. Very cool. Very cool. Well, listen. Sort of last question. Um, you know, we, we've got a number of links. Um, you know, the, the GitHub links, source code. You know, IBM Whisk on Bluemix. Where where can people potentially you know find you out and about uh, you know if you're at conferences and stuff uh, this year or you know what's a good way for people to maybe get in touch with you or your team if they want to talk about this some more? Sure, there's lots of different ways. Um, for me personally, um, I'm at SJ Fink on Twitter. If people wanted to message me there, um, if they Google me, um, Stephen Fink with S T E P H E N F I N K I B M on Google. You could find me and you'll see my email address and you can contact me that way. Um, through the Bluemix um, offering, if you just want to give general feedback or you find a bug, there's a feedback button right there in the UI. So you can just click that button and uh, send feedback. We have a Google group I, um, associated with the open source project. I'd also encourage everybody out there, if you have a problem or an idea, um, don't be shy to go to our GitHub project and uh, talk to us over the issue tracker. We do a lot of our design discussions and certainly bug discussions through the issue tracker on the GitHub repository. And so that's a great way to monitor the conversation that the development team is having and get involved. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very active community already, which is great. It's only just a couple of months old. Um, well, listen, thank you so much for this. This is, uh, it's, like I said, this has become a topic that's, that's really, um, you know, piqued the interest of, of a lot of our listeners. Uh, I know they're all trying to 
kind of figure out, you know, what, what, where should they start and which, which platform should they choose and so forth. I think it's cool that, uh, you guys are making this open. You've got, you know, a number of, of, uh, of options that people can, can kind of get started with. So this has been very good. Thank uh, Stephen, thank you so much for, uh, for the time tonight and, and the insight into what, uh, what IBM's doing. And, uh, hopefully we, uh, we look forward to talking to you again sometime soon, see how this is, uh, this is evolving. Great. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 